0: Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where we bring you remixed conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers from our archive. In the current climate, it feels as though journalists are under more threat than ever before, from despotic leaders and online trolls, to shrinking budgets and public cuts. And yet the urgency for transparent reporting of the truth has never felt stronger. This context makes the investigative work of Carol Cadwallader and her exposing of the Cambridge Analytica scandal all the more extraordinary. At Hay Festival 2019, she spoke to journalist and author Oliver Buller, a conversation on cyber crimes and the future of global conflict that feels just as topical today.
1: Carol is um, a journalist and works for The Observer, which is a little bit like saying Lionel Messi is a footballer who plays for Barcelona. It's accurate but doesn't really tell the whole story. She last year won two prizes at the British Journalism Awards, uh, a prize at the Foreign Press Association, uh, shortlisted for a Pulitzer, won the Orwell Prize, and I think most extraordinarily managed to knock $150 billion off the value of Facebook with one story. (laughs) We all all like to be paid for our work, we don't normally make quite that much. Um, I think more than perhaps any other journalist, she has alerted us to the threat that big data and the big tech companies pose to the integrity of our political process. So, Carol, could you tell us a little bit about how you started on this road? How did you start on the, on the Facebook story, on the social media story?
2: There's, there's kind of lots of different places I can begin it. But I think one of the most sort of evocative and dramatic was it was a few days after Trump had been elected. And um, I'd written a story just before the election about politics, about the idea of technology disrupting politics. And so my editor, that we just had those first stories with Mark Zuckerberg saying he thought it was ridiculous the idea that Facebook might have played a role in the election or fake news. We just started learning that that term. So my editor had said, do a feature. So that's what I'm at, at the Observer, I I wrote features, sort of long-form pieces. So he said, write a feature about fake news. And I was sort of, I, I was obviously behind schedule, as one always is, and I just, I got really curious about, I started getting curious about Google search. And you know what it was? This is the precipitating event. Was that somebody, a friend said to me, I didn't know that that you were 50. And I said, I am not 50. How dare you? I am 47. (laughs) And a vast difference. And he said, but he said, Google says that you're 50. And I was like, how dare it? So, and I looked, and Google did say I was 50. And I was, I was like, well, that's really weird, because it doesn't say that anywhere on the web. So then I was like, how does Google search work? And I was like, "Hmm, okay, so it's machine learning. It's learning from, it reads the websites and then deduces things. And so then I started playing around with search terms. And I just thought, well, I'll just try a few controversial type search terms. And this was... I put in Jews into the search bar of Google and you make it into a question, you know that's the thing that you do and so I put are Jews and Google auto completed the search box to are Jews evil. And I didn't even have to press return if the page filled and it was an entire page of results, every single one of which said yes, Jews are evil. And then at the bottom, there's suggested search terms. What, what do you want to search for next? And the first suggestion was, did the Holocaust happen? So I clicked, did the Holocaust happen? And every single one said, no, the Holocaust didn't happen. And the top result was Stormfront, which is a Nazi website. And it's kind of... It's It is is actually really important, I think, to keep on reliving that moment in a way because the sort of alarm and emergency and horror and confusion that I felt that night and thinking, what on earth is going on here has been the sort of propelling factor. And, And everything which started that night, actually, and with that first story has continued. So what I discovered is that Google refused to respond to my press inquiries. It refused to acknowledge that there was any problem. And it, you know, it was making out that, oh, it's got our search results depend upon what people are searching for. And, um, but then when we published the first article, it started hand-changing the results. Anyhow, I was really fortunate, because the day after, when I was like, what on earth am I seeing? And I saw this across all sorts of results. So then there's another very striking one, which I put women into the search bar. And I got, I did, are women, again. And I got, and again, the suggestion was, are women evil? (laughs) And when Google is really, really certain about the results, like 100% certainty, it puts the answer in a box. And, Are Women Evil? came up with a box, and it said, yes, women are evil, because every woman has a small degree of prostitute in her. <laughs> and there was an amazing thing as well. So, so Siri, you know those devices, Alexa, all those, if, the rest of them, they, if you ask them a question, if you ask Alexa a question, they will give you the Google box answer. So somebody tested it and they asked Alexa, it was, Alexa, are women evil? And there was a little, somebody did a little video of it going, yes, or every woman has a degree of prostitute in her. It was kind of, it's just sort of, anyhow, and it's just, we didn't know how long those results had been out there, you know, all through 2016, this was November 2016, I came across this. And and, and uh, sorry, I keep. I'm going on. I'm going on. I'm going on. No. Anyway, I, Ooh, I bought, bang well, on. where I was really fortunate was the next day, more or less, or a day later, I discovered this academic in America called Jonathan Albright, and he had just started mapping these fake news sites, and he looked at all the links going in and out, and then he kind of connected them together to do a graph. And I got him on the phone. It's like this dark and stormy night, and. Jonathan was really freaked out by what he was saying, and I was completely freaked out what I was saying. And together we completely freaked each other out even more. Because he, he was sort of saying, you know, people are saying it's fake news. They're saying, they're saying as if it's articles, but it's not. It's the entire system. And we can see it's like a cancer, and it's growing, and every bit of outrage is making it stronger. And it's strangling things like The Guardian and The New York Times and Wikipedia. And it's... It's, you know, it's like a shadow internet and it's sort of taken over our own internet. And, and, and that's, this story is kind of still all about that, really. I
1: think a lot of us have this idea that social media are sort of... You curate your own experience. You put information on, you see your friends and, and you think that that's essentially how what you see is decided by who your friends are, but of course it isn't. There is an algorithm that chooses it. So this sort of supposedly non-curated experience is actually curated by these very profitable companies who do it in the way that is most profitable. Um, Could you explain to me um, how, if you were in the fake news business, right, and I'm guessing that you've probably got quite a good insight into this now, how you would game the system, how you would make sure that fake news about Donald Trump or fake news about women being evil or fake news about whatever you wanted was what people saw and not accurate information. How do you play the
0: game?
2: Well, I, I, at a system level, I just still don't think we have those answers or, or I, haven't, I haven't read it completely because... We know that there, so th- th- what, what happened, what we were seeing there with the Google search results is that these bad actors, whoever they were, and th- I'm actually still have like, I'm just thinking now something Jonathan said to me. And he, the thing he said to me at the time is he said, this looks like it's centralized. It doesn't look accidental. It, this, there's a sort of central intelligence to this in some ways. But there's, what it is is that because these companies, they're private companies, so, and this is something you see all the way through. So they're these private companies and everything they do is in private and you have no insight into. So these kind of bad players can work out how to sort of manipulate the levers behind the scenes and so to game the system. And that, in, in, every, in sort of every aspect of this, we see them gaming that system and, and being kind of one step ahead of the, the engineers inside Google who are trying to sort of run behind them and fix it. And, um, yeah, evil is, like, really good at this stuff. That's the thing you learn. Is the bad guys, are like, really got the hang of it. It does
1: seem to be a real advantage if you just prepared to lie all the time. That seems to be, for some reason, an evolutionary advantage when it comes to social media.
2: Well, it's because lies are more shocking, I think, isn't it? And it's sort of like we know that anything which is outrageous or scary that that's the stuff which you know people share and that's the stuff that goes viral and and you know we certainly saw that in the trump election and you saw that in the referendum too it was just more powerful that the 350 million to the nhs was much more powerful than things will be much better if it all stays the same
1: yeah yeah things they're not <laughs> that great now but they'll probably yeah, be okay yeah
2: it might be worse if we leave yeah. so
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, it's a hard... Yeah, they're still struggling with that one. Um, um, so you started off just writing about the kind of the, the, the inherently problematic nature of the algorithms and the fact that we can't see what's controlling them. You quite quickly began writing about the specifics of the players in the referendum campaign in 2016. Um, how did that transition happen? How did you go from being the kind of oh my god this is troubling what Google is up to to oh dear these people on Facebook and what did they get up to?
2: Well it's all been a, it's all been a kind of transition but what's, what's, what's so funny is that so that, that same stormy night which set me off down that road was the first night as well I'd heard about this company I'd never heard of them at the time, Cambridge Analytica. And so they they went in the first article and then I was for the next kind of five weeks I was engaged in this battle against um, Google who were really hating me because I was doing things like I I took out an advertisement because Google wouldn't do anything about it. They were just still ignoring it and pretending it wasn't a problem. And um, so I took out a Google ad which said to go at the top of the search results and it said, yes, the Holocaust did happen and click this link, and so they really hated me for that. Anyway, so they were kind of fighting us, and then they... Hang
1: they were fighting you because you were saying the Holocaust was happening?
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Don't be evil. Yeah,
2: okay. and I was embarrassing them, but they couldn't actually... They were sort of slimmed in that there was a problem there, and so and they say they weren't bothering to fix it.
1: So just to briefly in brackets, Cambridge Analytica, yeah. what, what are they all about?
2: So Cambridge Analytica, so I'd never heard of them at that point. And Jonathan Albright said to me, he said, well, they, they, he said, this is really, you know, he said, he said the, the whole thing about this fake news system is he said, companies like Cambridge Analytica, and I was, who's Cambridge Analytica? And he said, well, they worked for the Trump campaign and they worked in Brexit. And what they can do, he said, with this, they, for example, they could, you, they could, in, if you read a fake news, one of these articles, you, they could put a cookie in your computer when you've, read, when you've visited that page and then that, it'll then track you around the internet and see what else you read and then it can use that information to target you. It'll learn all sorts of things about you and then it can, use, it can target you with this sort of individualised propaganda. So he said that to me and I just put it in the article and I was fighting Google and then Cambridge Analytica started writing these totally Shit, insane letters, <laughs> and um, like, I, I really didn't go after Cambridge Analytica. This is the funny thing about it. They came after me, and we're like, no, 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 it's not true. We never worked for. A, we never worked for, for in the Brexit campaign. What? <laughs> And, um, so, and, I was like, and so the reader's editor came to me and said, look, you've got a complaint. We need to address this. Do we need to correct it? And I was like, no, 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 they said it. There's this web... I said, look, here's Leave EU's website where they say, we hired Cambridge Analytica. And, and then here's an article, which is an interview with Alexander Nix, the CEO of Cambridge Analytica, saying, we're working for the Leave campaign. So it's like, what's the problem? So we wrote back and said that. And um, and then had another little battle with Google, and then Cambridge Analytica wrote back said yeah yeah yeah, but we actually never worked for the Brexit campaign, and so we were like so we wrote back again, and then they wrote back the third time, and then it was like well, what is going on, and um, so uh, the readers editor of the Observer he got in touch with Andy Wigmore who worked for Nigel Farage's sort of, you know, associate who worked on the Leave campaign. And, um, sorry, am I being really boring? I feel no, like, no, nonsense, I'm, like no, going no. off on of a thing. <sighs> I just like to drone on, endlessly. So, so anyhow, what, but I had this pivotal coffee. So Pret-a-Manger plays a key moment in this story.
1: What kind of coffee was it?
2: I think it might have been a cappuccino. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> it was in Westminster. And there was, it was kind of funny, because I walked past this protest to Trump, which was happening, and I walked down this street in Westminster and Andy like, got his mobile out of his pocket and he was, he'd just come back from the Trump inauguration. So he was showing me all the photos inside Trump Tower and then he just laid it all out. And he was like, oh yeah, it's going to be amazing, Carol. What these billionaires are doing with data, it's incredible. <laughs> and, and I was like, so Andy, did did you work with Cambridge Analytica? And he was like, yes, they were amazing. <laughs> it's like, they're artificial intelligence. It's so creepy. And then... And then, and I was like, oh, OK. And, and, I, and he said, but we didn't pay them for it. And I was like, oh, OK, so it's like a gift. And he was like, yeah, 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 we didn't need to pay them because, you know, Steve Bannon's a mate and Robert Mercer is a mate, so we all just wanted to help each other out. And Just in
1: case no one knows who Steve Bannon and Robert Mercer are.
2: Ah, uh, yeah. So Steve Bannon is the—he was the campaign manager for Trump and the editor of Breitbart. He at the time he was Donald Trump's chief strategist. And Robert Mercer is this kind of incredible um, billionaire who runs a hedge fund, which makes—he makes enormous amounts of money. He invented, um, oh, sorry, algorithmic trading. So he uses. He, makes, he, used, he invented using computers to make money via hedge funds, essentially. And he, he bankrolled uh, Donald so Trump. So he
1: basically Sorry, I'm gave, going on again. gave Cambridge, Cambridge Analytical Service to yes. Nigel Farage. So then
2: I had this very beautiful moment, which was when I rang up the Electoral Commission. And I said, and I said hmm. So I said, like, what do you have to declare spending-wise? And, you know, and I, said, I said, like, a gift, for example. Would that be would you have to declare it if it was services? So, and they were like, yes, you would have to declare that. And so I kept on looking, and I was like, so if you didn't declare a gift, and if the gift was from a foreigner or a foreign company, would that be a problem? And they were like, yes, that would be illegal. I was like, oh. <laughs> uh-huh. Aha. <Yeah. laughs>
1: so, I mean, as a journalist, does that count as a story?
2: I can't <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny because I kind of didn't believe it. I kept on ringing them back and saying, So you're sure? Sort of like. so it's, like, it's a gift from. Anyway, so They're I. They're like, Get I, off the
1: phone, call." I know,
2: I sort of ran them three times. So I was like, Well, it just appears that they've broken the law. And, um, and, and it, 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 it is kind of amazing because. So that was the first story, February 2017. And it was the first story. It was a long story. It was about Robert Mercer and Steve Bannon and Cambridge Analytica. But it did trigger these two investigations and which are still ongoing now and actually it kind of have been, was the sort of precipitating factor of the rest of this story so the electoral commission opened an investigation because they hadn't declared their spending it looked properly it looked like and that's the, that investigation has now been referred to the police the met police and then another investigation kicked off also that week because <laughs> elizabeth denham who's the information commissioner heard what they said they were doing with data and was like, well, that doesn't sound legal either. And so they started an investigation then. And so that investigation that the ICO started, that became the biggest data investigation in the world ever. They've had 70 full-time people on it. They gave Facebook the maximum possible fine. And they're still going on now. So they, they, it was the ICO which went in and seized Cambridge Analytica's servers and found all sorts of stuff. They're auditing Aaron Banks' business at the moment because so there's all sorts of stuff going sure, on. Sure,
1: there's nothing to find there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, maybe we'll come to him. Um, you, you did work with some amazing whistleblowers. Can we hear a yes. little bit about them just because I'm full of admiration for what they did?
2: Well, there's a very special thing today, which is so somebody who played a really pivotal and unsung hero of the Cambridge Analytica story, who is incredibly brave, is here in the audience today. (laughs) So this is a really, really unsung hero because this person has remained anonymous And one of the things which has really struck me and surprised me, actually, is that I thought more people would come forward after this story came out. And it's a really difficult thing to be a whistleblower. That's one of the things I've learned. And it's even difficult to be an anonymous whistleblower because of the possible repercussions. So the person that played a really pivotal role and was the person who told me that i needed to look for christopher wiley when i started asking about facebook data and said you need to find christopher wiley cuz he's the person who knows about the facebook data and the reason why that's kind of so important, this could only have come from a person, because there was nothing on the internet to connect Chris Wiley to Cambridge Analytica. So it was only through going through this sort of chain of people that I, I found him. So anyhow, thank you, anonymous person. Yes. <laughs> it's,
1: thank you. It's uh, really important. Um, on everyone's behalf. <laughs> you have... Um, taken on some astonishingly powerful people and some astonishingly wealthy people and some astonishingly unscrupulous people. And the personal consequences for you have been quite severe. Isn't that... I mean, how is that?
2: Well, the the consequences... So, the the people who are the whistleblowers, who who were front and centre of this, are the ones who were really brave and really took the risk, I think. And I always... Whenever I talk about this, I always talk about lovely Shamir Sarni. I don't know who, if you all know who he is. But he's the guy who blew the whistle on Vote Leave's illegal overspending. And he's been completely vindicated. They've been found to have broken the law. They've been referred to the police. This involves people right at the very top of government and the man, who, of course, who's the next would-be Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. And, sh- should I do that again? Boris Johnson.
1: <laughs> we need a, we need a he's behind you.
2: <laughs> well, we could do it again. Nigel Farage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is a safe space here, Carolyn.
2: Anyway, I really so Shamir. The way he was dragged through the mud, and he has borne these terrible personal consequences for coming forward and telling the truth, and that's been really disturbing and upsetting and shocking to watch. And um, it's a really, really shameful kind of episode, actually. I find in British modern British history, and I, I still don't feel he's had the. Sort of recognition for what he did, really, and it, he has really paid a personal price for it. So, anyhow, his to Shemir.
1: Here's to Shamir, but I think history will perhaps be a lot kinder to him than it will be to some of the people who he's, whose work he's exposed.
2: yeah, yeah. And it's funny because he's so clear, of kind of like he he's sort of he just says, you know, he, even despite everything, he just he you know he said he knew it was the right thing to do, and it is. I don't know. It's so it's so interesting because. Again, you just sort of think about people who have information about what is going on, and most people don't come forward to journalists. And I just wish they did. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I was just thinking about this. The other, I was just thinking, it's one of the things I was sort of think about. And I was like, I really need somebody like in MI5 or MI6 to come forward. That's right. If you know anybody, yeah. Any, family friend, anyone in the room. <laughs> But there there must be people who have a conscience, who have seen things and witnessed things, and particularly as well inside the tech companies. You know, and so, I, I don't know, I really just hope that more people sort of do, like, listen to their conscience, and these things are so important.
1: I'm interested. What you say. if someone says, you know, I can understand this as a problem, possibly, but I don't get influenced by Facebook adverts. It doesn't affect me. I'm a, a you know, an intelligent adult. What do you say to that? Because obviously, if it didn't, there wouldn't be this much money going into it. So, but no one feels like they're influenced on a personal level. How do you t- tell people that story?
2: There's kind of lots of different ways that, that I look at, that, I, that sort of I, I respond to that. So, because um, there's also the argument that people say, Owen Jones made it, it was sort of like, oh, it's ridiculous to think that Russian bots told people how to vote. And it's like, no, Owen, it doesn't work like that. And it's so, so with the Facebook ad stuff, I do think that you've got to, like, probably most of the people here were not the target audience of these ads, and... They're not interested in the people who were very firmly leave, and they weren't interested in the people who were very firmly remain. You, you, there were two categories of people that they were trying to identify, and that was the people who don't normally vote, who they could turn out, and particularly sort of... Like, one of their great targets was young, white, working-class men, and that's why they, they targeted them with a, this football competition that they used, which was a data-harvesting exercise... Completely disguised. And then the other thing was this, 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 these, this category of people, the, the persuadables. So they're genuinely people who hadn't made up their mind.
1: That sounds like the worst ever superhero film. I know,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah. <laughs> But the, the, um, everything went in, everything they did, all of this data science went into figuring out who those people were, identifying a few and then using... You can use, then use like Facebook's own tools to find lookalikes to these people. And then the only thing that they know really with any certainty works in terms of influence people in elections is you get them at the last possible moment. So the last thing you see before you go off to the polling booth, essentially, can be the most influential thing. And so that is why with Vote Leave, for example, the last 48 hours was key. And that is when we know that they were using that nearly three quarters of a million pounds of illegal money. That was, they, they, did that, they did this illegal funding with Believe in the last couple of days. Can,
1: can you just so explain that, how that worked quickly, the, the Believe aspect? Yeah, so, so it's just a story. fake.
2: It's just a sort of. So we've got strict limits on the amount of money that they could spend. And they'd, they hit the, that spending li- limit 48 hours before the election. So they thought shit, basically. And they, so they funneled, they, they took a chunk of money and they, fun, they set up a fake. Um, it looked like a separate campaign, but actually they were directing it, and they put the money through through that campaign. And that campaign had a separate spending limit. And the law is is that if you're working, if campaigns are working together, then they have to declare their money jointly. And it, and then the thing is about it, it wasn't just. We I mean, we also know that there were another three campaigns who were working with Vote Leave as well. I mean, there's still. There, we, there's a lot of investigations going on now, but there's still also a lot of things which are kind of still being brushed under the carpet, and that's one of them. Um,
1: there, there are people who, who say that everyone who writes about this story is just a Ramona, that we need to get over it, um, etc., cetera, um, that we're kind of patronising people and everyone knew their own mind and so on. It, I mean, this is a criticism which you get a lot if you look at your Twitter feed. People are just constantly telling you. Um,
2: when, when I'm not a crazy cat woman. You when mean,
1: you're not a crazy cat woman and you're not having your face superimposed on someone being beaten up and all that stuff, which is horrible and, frankly, some of the people in senior positions in our national broadcaster should be ashamed of themselves. Um, not the, we
2: won't name, Andrew Neil. Yeah. But apart from that. Yeah. Apart from that. <laughs> um, I can't remember
1: what my question was now. <laughs> yes. How do we how oh, do you, re-moaning. the the ramoning thing? How do we how do we get past the fact that, that you know because it's true you know though there were issues with the Remain campaign, the vast majority of the bad behaviour was done by the well the QC. illegal behaviour
2: yeah, was the, done by the Leave side. The illegal
1: behaviour exactly. So so but how do you you know get past the politicisation and the politicizedness of this issue to to make that point? If you, if you see what I mean.
2: Because, I mean, it's just sort of like, say it was one side this time, but the next time, the next election, it'll be the other side. I mean, it's just that nothing works anymore. None of our laws work anymore. So the technology has just changed everything, and it's, comp- it's a complete free-for-all now. It's basically wh- whichever billionaire is, like, the best at disguising dark money is going to win the next election. And so at the moment, you know, we... There is very suspicious funding going on around the Brexit party. And and so before we saw this Facebook being used to sort of funnel this dark money. And now the stuff going on, which I don't know if you saw, which was that PayPal being used,
0: it's just a free-for-all. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Tune in next week to hear human rights activist and author Layla Slimani talking about her best-selling thriller Adele with lawyer Philippe Sands. Slimani has a wicked sense of humour and is immensely fun, so it's not to be missed. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and give us a rating wherever you're listening. This podcast was presented by me, Poppy Evans. See you next week.